Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Well, welcome back. This is my second lesson in my podcast series on Adam and Eve. During the first podcast, we discussed the idea that as intelligent, rational beings, we don't have to make a choice between belief in science or belief in God because it's actually possible to believe both. Just start with God. The Bible doesn't tell us how God did things. You can't read the Bible as a how-to book and then be able to imitate creation, for example, because that's not the Bible's intent. The goal of the Bible is to tell us who created. The goal of science is for us to try to understand the how of things. We also took a look at the first and the second chapters of the very first books of the Bible, and that's Genesis. And I encouraged you to study both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as a whole, rather than considering these two chapters as two separate accounts of creation that might somehow contradict one another. We discussed that the first book of Genesis gives an account of creation to a non-Jewish audience starting from the very beginning of watery chaos. And this is the creator God, the Elohim God. And then Genesis 2 begins at a different point in the narrative. And the focus here is on the creation of man and woman. And it shows us a very personal God. That's the Yahweh God. And The focus of this chapter is on God's relationship with humans. We also introduce this Hebrew word bara, B-A-R-A, which literally means to create from nothing. Three times this idea of bara was illustrated for us. And the first time was in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, bara. The second time was when God created the birds and the fish, bara. And then the third time was when God created man, bara, from nothing. We noted in our last lesson that the creation of man was truly the crowning point of God's creation. And there's this entirely different tone and feel to man's creation compared to the description of each previous day's creation. Let there be, let the land produce, let the water teem. But then the creation of man introduces us to this meeting of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and We have this glorious declaration of this crowning achievement in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, 
and let them rule. Now, this statement separates the creation of man from all previous creative acts, and it gives him both distinction from the other creation, make man in our image, in other words, in the image of God, and also preeminence over everything else that God has created, because it says, let them rule. And yes, while we may maintain close resemblances in our physical organs and our frame to some animals, we alone are created in his own likeness, in his image. Adam, human, is created not as the rest of creation by a word or a command, but the Bible tells us that the Lord himself formed Adam from the dust of the earth and breathed into Adam's nostrils the very breath of God himself. Think about that for a moment. God literally gave something of himself when he created man. For today's lesson, before we talk about Eve, let's talk about trees. Specifically, let's talk about those very unique trees that God placed in the middle of the Garden of Eden. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But a better translation is actually the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, because there is no word for evil in Hebrew. First, the tree of life. Oh, it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Do you sort of imagine a fountain of youth, the tree of life? This tree, if you eat from it, you never grow old and you never die. Well, here's a few things that we know about it. First, you know, this tree was not forbidden to Adam. And that's really important for us to think about. He could literally eat from it up until the time that he and Eve sinned. Now, God says in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, by eating from the tree of life, Adam could have attained never-ending life. Here's something to consider. Before the sin, our body was not mortal in the sense that we think of the word mortal, because it did not have to die. But it also at this point isn't immortal either because it could die if sin entered, which we know from the story is actually the case. But had Adam eaten from this tree of life, his body would have been transfigured by sacramental and organic means into a spiritual being. And essentially, he would have become immortal. This body, which began in glory, 
was to have gone on from glory to glory. Bible scholars agree that the tree of life was to serve as a symbol to Adam and Eve of their life and fellowship with God and their dependence on him. Life with God was supposed to be eternal life. In the center of the garden, human life was distinguished from that of all animals. Adam and Eve were created by God to be much more than just biological beings. They were also created as spiritual beings who would discover their deepest fulfillment in fellowship with God. However, this fullness of life in all its physical and spiritual dimensions could only be maintained through obedience to God's commands. We learn about this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. But the Lord God warned Adam, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now, the idea of the tree of life is first mentioned by God in the garden in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life is also mentioned a couple of other times in the Bible. For example, kind of in the middle of the Bible is the book of Proverbs, and the tree of life is talked about as being the tree that would bring enrichment of life in terms of knowledge, good deeds, fulfilled desires, gentle speech. This tree is the picture of eternal life that is in Christ. No wonder the serpent wanted to distract them from this tree. You know, tree of life images are also present at the very end of the Bible. So think about it. It's at the beginning, the middle, and it's at the end. And that's in the book of Revelation. First, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. It says, Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. In Revelation, the tree of life represents that restoration of that life-giving presence of God because sadly, as we will learn next week, Access to the tree of life was cut off to mankind in Genesis 3, verse 24, because of Adam and Eve's decision to defy God. And God has to station mighty cherubim and flaming swords to block the way to the tree of life. But here we are in the book of Revelation, that there's a way back to the tree of life. It's open to all 
who have been washed in the blood of Christ. Revelation chapter 22, verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. Remember, the tree of life was not forbidden to us until after our sin. Our earthly body was supposed to be an everlasting spiritual body, incorruptible and immortal. Adam should have chosen this tree. This tree represented life with Christ. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood shall not die, but have eternal life. And by eating from the tree of life, man would have attained that personal knowledge of good and bad by knowing good. Instead, man now knows evil by experiencing evil. See the difference? Man's power to choose good was gone. So why was there this tree of the knowledge of good and bad placed in the garden? Well, it was set there by God to test the obedience of Adam and Eve. By choosing this tree, they would be acting independently from God and literally determining for themselves what was good and bad. Because God made it clear why he put us in the garden. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, God put the man in the garden of Eden to worship and serve him. God built this amazing garden for us so that he could have fellowship with us and that we would worship and serve him. God wanted Adam and Eve to exercise and develop their free will by being victorious over temptation. By avoiding this tree, man would demonstrate submission to God by choosing of his own free will to obey him. And can you imagine the amazing feeling of joy that Adam and Eve would have felt had they avoided the tree of the knowledge of good and bad? Because they would have grown to experience the realization that anything contrary to the will of God needs to be avoided and is anathema to the fact that we're made in God's image. They would have gained a personal knowledge of good and bad by knowing good. They and we would know good by exercising our likeness to God. Because think about it, God only knows bad in the sense that he is utterly separate from it. Adam and Eve are created as adults, but most likely they're still in their moral infancy in the garden. They don't know what is right and wrong because they need God to teach them how to be wise and how to choose what's right and wrong. The Hebrew word for good and bad is ta'av is good and ra is bad. Knowing ta'av and ra is a sign of maturity. The phrase ta'av and ra actually appears several times in the Bible to describe children. 
Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 39 says, Your little ones and your sons who today do not know good or bad, Ta'ah and Rav, shall enter there and I will give it to them and they shall possess it. And then in 1 Kings chapter 3 verses 7 through 9, King Solomon prays, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. So give your servant a heart that listens to judge your people, to discern between good and bad, ta'ah and ra. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Unquote. Okay, let's not let Adam and Eve off the hook here. God made it clear to them that they were to learn all of this from him. So the trees represent a choice. Will they live with God, allowing him to define ta'ah and ra? Presumably, they need to know this as they mature. But the question is, who's going to teach it to them? Will they learn from watching God's knowledge at work? Will they allow God to teach them wisdom? Or will they take this knowledge for themselves so that they, quote, become like Elohim, knowing what is ta'ah and ra, good and bad? Well, we know the answer. The Bible tells us that Instead of waiting for God to teach them the knowing of good and bad, they chose to take it upon themselves in their own time and their own way. Gosh, we often do this, don't we? Rather than waiting on the Lord to answer our prayers or to give us the wisdom, we tend to just bust ahead and try to do things on our own, in our own time, and our own way. So, what exactly happens in the garden with Eve? When we talk about these familiar Bible stories, and we often assume we know exactly what happened in rich detail until someone asks, well, where's that in the Bible? <laughs> and then we realize that, honestly, many of the details that we think we know came from teachers and books and movies and not from Scripture. So I want to start with what we think we know about the fruit that Eve gave Adam. What did Eve give Adam to eat and what did she eat herself? Many of us were taught that it was an apple, right? In fact, if you look at a lot of the ancient artwork, it's an apple. Well, if you go back and you reread the passage, it doesn't say apple. It says fruit. She saw the fruit of the tree. The Hebrew word for fruit is peri, P-E-R-I, and it's a generic word for fruit. This is the word that's used in the Bible. So how did we ever get this idea that it was an apple? Well, we think it was when the Bible was translated into Latin in the 400 ADs. When they were translating the word for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Latin word for evil 
was malice. M-A-L-U-S. It's actually where we get that word malice. M-A-L-I-C-E. Okay, that's the adjective. It means bad or evil. But malice as a noun means apple. Isn't that interesting? This idea of a bad apple, it's almost a double entendre, but it's not what the scriptures said. It's not what was written. It's only that we were taught that. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so do we know what kind of tree it actually was? Many Jewish commentators think it may have been a fig tree because the next sentence says they, quote, sewed fig leaves together because they immediately realized their shame and their nakedness. And perhaps they were still standing next to the tree and it was a fig tree. But others believe now it was a pomegranate tree. I've also heard a grape tree, an apricot tree, And then some Jewish scholars don't think it was a tree at all. And they say, it was wheat. It was wheat. Okay. (laughs) So uh, here's the bottom line. While there are no apples found in the desert of southern Iraq, where we believe the Garden of Eden was, of course, it's possible that God could have planted an apple tree there, right? I mean, he created the whole world. Anything's possible with God. But it also could have been something equally tasty, that was not an apple. We don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. Now let's think about what we know or we think we know about that nasty serpent. Many of us grew up learning that the serpent is the devil. Where does Genesis actually identify Eve's deceiver as the devil? And what kind of serpent talks? And where was the serpent? We all think he was in the tree, right? And why wasn't Eve shocked to hear a serpent talking to her? Aren't these good questions? Well, you know, in our effort to make sense of these strange scenes from history, based on our limited perspective of our own lives, many times we try to Fill in the details in the Bible. But we need to be careful. God has a reason for every word he says and doesn't say. All scripture is God-breathed. We need to separate God's word from our conjectures. So what do we really know about the details? Open your Bibles. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to focus on chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and 
also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Who was the serpent? Some early Jewish writers didn't think Satan was behind this temptation. After all, Satan's name doesn't appear in Genesis. And these early writers believed that the serpent itself tempted Eve. And for this amazing thing to be possible, a talking serpent, they assumed that this creature, along with many other beasts, was originally able to talk. And the craftiness of this particular animal is what led Eve to fall into sin. Now, we talked briefly about this idea of prior to the fall that some believe that man was able to talk to animals and conversely, animals were able to talk to man. And along these same lines, there's an ancient text called the Book of Jubilees. And this was found along with many of the other Dead Sea Scrolls. And it states, quote, that on the day Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, God closed the mouths of all living things so that they could no longer speak for they had all spoken with one tongue, unquote. And then Josephus. Now I've spoken about Josephus before. He was a first century Jewish historian and also a contemporary of the apostles. He kind of repeated this popular Jewish idea, writing that, quote, God also deprived the serpent of speech out of indignation at his malicious disposition towards Adam. Besides this, he inserted poison under his tongue and made him an enemy to men, unquote. Huh. Well, that's interesting. But from a Christian perspective, that position has some weaknesses. Remember, when interpreting scripture, we should always look to scripture <laughs> and lean not on our own understanding. So what does scripture say? Well, the serpent in the garden is linked to Satan quite a few times in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 through 15. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, for example. Also, did Genesis indicate that any animals, including serpents, had the ability to speak? No. And then the curse that God gave the serpent, did it include a statement about animals losing their ability to speak? No. And then if this perpetrator was just a serpent, then God's curse on the serpent seems to imply much more than the fact that, you know what, humans and snakes, you guys are not going to be best friends. Let's take a look at what God says the curse is going to be because of the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Listen as I read. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. 
You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel, unquote. It seems that scripture tells us that this curse on the serpent goes well beyond just men and women not loving on snakes. For example, we have in the New Testament, Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So continuing the Christian view, some people think this passage refers to the fact that Satan was able to physically manifest himself in the garden, probably in the form of a serpent or a dragon, because it says in Genesis 3, verse 1, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. And they believe it means the serpent was not like any of the beasts of the field because it was, in fact, Satan. And then they also look to Ezekiel in the Old Testament, chapter 28, verses 12 through 17, because in this passage, it seems to refer in some way to Satan, and it states, quote, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, believing the serpent was Satan certainly does a better job at explaining why the serpent was able to speak and why he would attempt Eve, and then why God's curse on the serpent affects more than just our relationship between snakes and people. We also read this scripture as describing God's promise of a redeemer through Christ who will ultimately crush the head of Satan. Now, the most popular view of the serpent among Christians today is that Satan possessed the serpent in the garden. So a real serpent was involved in the temptation, just as Genesis 3 states, but Satan was responsible. And they look at the Bible examples of Satan and evil spirits possessing animals like pigs in Luke chapter 8, verse 33. Because Satan's ability to perform an action similar to this is not disputed throughout the Bible. And this viewpoint also offers a reasonable explanation for the serpent's ability to speak because he's possessed and his desire to tempt Eve because he's possessed by Satan. And, you know, if you take this view, then the first half of God's curse, where he says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed you are among all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. Seems to apply to that actual creature, the serpent. While the second half of the curse, Genesis 3, 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That seems to be focused more on the evil one who possessed the snake. But here are a few unanswered questions for you to ponder. Why would God blame the serpent, a non-rational creature in that first part of the curse, because you have done this, and curse the serpent and its offspring if 
Satan had actually been the culprit. Also, food for thought, if it was an actual serpent being cursed and now it's supposed to go on its belly, does that mean it originally moved in a different manner? Did it have wings or legs? Hmm. Things are not always as they seem at first glance, are they? You know, this often becomes apparent when we study the scriptures in detail. Sometimes when we more closely study scripture, we find that we have falsely believed something that in fact is not even there, like the apple or the belief that the serpent was in the tree. In the case of the serpent in the garden, many questions remain unanswered and we need to be tentative in answering them. Either we lack sufficient understanding or the Holy Spirit chose not to divulge enough information for us to be conclusive. And yeah, it's intriguing to think about the serpent's appearance or to consider the ways that the devil works through possessing an animal, for example. But here's what's way more important. It's the concern of how he was able to deceive the woman and how Satan continues to tempt people to doubt the word of God today. Just as in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, where the serpent, the evil one, the devil, led Eve to question the reliability of God, where he says, did God really say? The enemy is currently attacking the reliability of the early chapters of Genesis with similar deadly results. Stop to think about this. Many believers have fallen for his deception and have opted to reinterpret or completely ignore the biblical view of the origin of man, the first sin, and even the biblical foundation of marriage. This attack has had devastating results because it undercuts our understanding of biblical authority and the basis for soul-saving gospel message. Learning from the mistakes of Eve, we need to take a firm stand on God's word, starting in Genesis. The word Genesis means beginning. If we don't believe Genesis, we may as well throw out the whole book because it begins with God and it ends with God. God meant what he said and he said what he meant. I encourage you to prayerfully dig deeper into his word this week. How can you share with others what you have learned? Next week in our final podcast in this Adam and Eve series, we will take a closer look at Eve and the temptation that caused her to sin. And what were the long-term consequences of this decision that still affect us and all creation to this day? Have a blessed day.